So anyway, this morning I wanted to kind of dive into something that seemed to me to be the next step in, in kind of a progression that we have been on together. We've been on quite the journey as a body over the last year. Um, and, you know, as I sat and prepared uh, what I was going to s- share on today, it wasn't lost on me that we really have gone through so many iterations of tracking down this Jesus, tracking down this Trinitarian uh, God, uh, the Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and we've really spent a lot of time here. We've, we've, you know, Pastor Galen walked us through the book of Philippians in a new way. Um, we have heard, uh, you know, Vanji just shared recently about magnifying the Lord. Let's look closer at what he's like. We've explored God as a father. We've certainly explored God as Jesus. We've explored God as the Holy Spirit turning the lights on to all of this stuff. And now it seems the next obvious progression in this relationship that we have with him is what about us? What about us exactly? What about the kingdom life? How is it different? What is it really like? And by the way, if I asked a question in the kingdom, who really has it well off? Honestly, in the world, we have answers for that because there's wealth and power, and those guys seem to have it pretty good. There's people without that that seem to have it pretty bad. But we've lived long enough to know that wealth and power really are an empty hole that you can dump more and more into, and it will never be filled. It will never provide satisfaction. It's easy for us to say, having experienced, maybe some of us, like I can do all things through Christ. Paul, I've lived, you know, with a lot and I've lived with a little. I've lived in sickness and I've lived in health. I've done that. I've done all of that. And so we know being really close to wealth and power, though, is a bit alluring. It's a bit seductive, I've been told. Um, It's one of those things that we understand there's this God-shaped hole in the center of each of us, and only he is enough to fill it. That's why our ideas about God and what we think about him largely determines what we think about us. And that's really important. If we're going to receive his love, walk in his grace, and be salt in the earth and light to the world. So before I get too far down the tracks here, I want to play you a video. I'll explain the context uh, right after that. Do we have that ready? Hit it. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I, I wonder do you know him? <laughs> my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. 
represented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is light. I wish I could describe him, but yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. wish I could describe him to you. I love that two-thirds of the way through. I wish I could describe him to you, but man, in the heart of the believer, is that true? He's all of those things, and we can't even get there. We're still not even there. I love that. That jacks me up. I have to be careful if I play that not to watch it before I need to talk again, because I'm too, you know? Um, because it just gets at the heart of the heart, right? It gets at the thing that we're all doing here. It gets at the, the mission, the heart of the mission that he came incarnate to us for. So this morning, I wanted to take a little bit of a look at the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a reason for this. I, I really feel like the Sermon on the Mount, we see it illustrated Matthew 5 through 7, uh, you know, if you uh, were a good Bible college student or a theologian, you've studied this probably more than anything. It makes really, really, it's a whole collection of good bumper sticker sayings. It's a whole bunch of, of fun things to think, but we don't think of it enough as a connected sermon. It was one talk. You don't need to see it that way. Take it in its parts, that's fine. But the important thing to remember is that he doesn't make one statement absent of his awareness of the other statements. This kingdom is enduringly strong. This kingdom is the pathway to righteousness, and the kingdom is available. 
Last time I spoke, I was able to share with you that the kingdom was at hand. It was as if dinner is served. The very phrasing there that says the kingdom is at hand means that it's like you're on the veranda and the house servants have come to you and said, please, the table is set, your chair is waiting, the food is prepared, come and feast. That's the kingdom at hand. And this is the king of that kingdom. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to take a few things into consideration and go ahead and and make a couple of assumptions with me. One, Jesus is a genius. He's a genius. Now, say, ah, well, you know, I mean, he's a inspiring. He was a prophet. He's even the Messiah. I'll go big. But no, he's a genius. If by the Spirit of Jesus the earth is held together, if by the Spirit of Jesus he holds all things together, and all things live and move and have their being in this Jesus then he also is the progenitor of our philosophy. He is the master of our literature. He understands public speaking and oratory, and he understands the hearts of you and I. So when we read this, let's make an assumption together today. You can question it later, but for today, here's the established basis. Jesus is a genius. Matthew 5, verse 1, I think I have that for you. We're going to read first, we're going to dive right in. We're going to read the Beatitudes, the great kickoff to the Sermon on the Mount. Pay very close attention here. This is in uh, NIV, I believe. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Next verse, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, I don't know why that was necessary. He began to teach them. He opened his mouth. He did not use PowerPoint. He did not use flannel graph. He was verbally teaching them. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Number 5, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. If, by the way, if you're a good uh, police officer in America, you have a t-shirt that says that right on the back. Big time. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, we'll talk about that in a second. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is there a verse 13? If not, that's where I want to stop. So he made a list for us. Humans love lists. We like to-do lists. Well, we may not love to-do lists, but they sure help us understand what's going on, right? We make lists out of everything. We want to know what the rules are. You ever get in a dispute with someone and they want to know, what are my rights? Let me decode that for you. It means, what can I do to offend you the very most without paying any price for it? What can I do to come your way and win in the very most maximum sense without paying any without violating the rules. What are my rights? That's what that means, by the way. Ask me how I know. 
the reality is that we love lists because the heart of man in there is this beautiful thing that God has built and also this sense in which we can be seduced into wrong thinking. We can be seduced into thinking the way of the world and seeking after, okay, what is it that I got to do to get in? If this kingdom is at hand, what is it that I have to do to be there? Now, we need to pause. Who's Jesus talking to? A bunch of people on the Sea of Galilee on the shores. But who were the people? This was not a leadership seminar. He did not take a private jet to a G12 summit. He is not speaking to the, the makers of corporate synergy, you know, for their strategic objectives in the following quarter. He is not talking to leaders unless they're sprinkled into the crowd. He's talking to people that have already heard him say the kingdom was at hand and they came to hear more. So remember, this is what I look at as a second-tier conversation. This is not talking to the Pharisees. He'll mention them, but he is not talking to the Pharisees. He is talking to men and women, regular people, who were curious at this availability of the kingdom and wanted to hear more. Probably many are skeptical. Probably many are bewildered. Maybe some are ridiculously hopeful. Whatever, but they're normal people with normal lives, with children and jobs, things to risk, but these are not the world leaders. These are anyone who would come. These are people interested in the kingdom at hand. So when he starts to share with them, and he is a genius in the way that he shares, he gives them a list because this is secretly what everyone wanted to know. Who gets in? The Pharisees tell us that they're in. They tell us we're out. They tell us what the rules are to get in, and I can do most of them, but I keep falling short. Somehow, they don't. It's amazing. But I keep falling short, and I can't get in. They keep giving me the rules, and by the way, it's as if in the Old Testament, that God said, you want rules? Fine. Here's ten. And then we made Deuteronomy and made 748 more or so. Right? Because we love lists. We need to know the rules. And as soon as you give me the rules, if, as soon as you give me the Ten Commandments, well, does it mean everyone that keeps the Ten Commandments is just in? Now the second question becomes, well, who's more in? Who's most in? Right? Yeah, you did the Ten Commandments. You're in. But I'm in. Right? I'm all the way in. This is where our talk about mansions in heaven comes from. What size is your mansion? You know, I don't know. Growing up, that was a conversation. It was kind of funny. I don't know uh, about real estate in heaven. I don't know who the agents are, how that works. But in any case, I know we just keep expanding the rules. And it's not working for a lot of people. What is Jesus saying here? Let's go back to verse 2, if you would. Five, verse 2, I'm sorry, verse 3. Verse 3, next one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He started the list with poor in spirit. Most of my upbringing, I was taught to believe that poor in spirit is somehow a virtue. It's not 
it's actually poor in spirit. It's hidden right there behind the words. It's not good. It's not desirable. And I've heard well-meaning speakers, even modern speakers, talk about, well, it's good to be poor in spirit. It's the spirit of gentleness. It's the spirit. Okay, cool. I think that's good. That's not this list. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's shocking to the hearer. Because the rich in spirit are supposed to be who's blessed. And in fact, if you're not rich in spirit, this Jesus came to sort of make you rich in spirit, and that's how you get in. But he's setting the bar lower. He says, nope, nope. Guess what? The kingdom, blessed are the losers. Losers. That's who gets in. You can get in because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Well, after they're rich in spirit. Uh, verse 4. If we can move to the next slide. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, well, that's virtuous. No, it's not. It's hurting. It's missing something lost. It's weakness. It's vulnerability. We all go through it. But it is not a virtue to be sought. It is a condition of human life. Next verse. Blessed are the gentle. Now, finally, we're at a virtuous place here. Well, that word gentle is kind of translated funny. Another word for that always goes with it in Sunday school is meek. How many times have you heard meek being very positive? This person's very meek. It means they're harmless and helpless. Okay. Now, by the way, I don't mean to detract the meaning of that word if it has had significance to you uh, in, in some way. That's not the point, because there is certainly a way where God wants us to have a spirit of gentleness. There's no doubt about that. But I want to share. I want to. I want you to think about something with me, if you will. One person cannot be gentle if you are harmless. Do you understand? You can't be gentle if you have no capacity to be violent or powerful, or strong. Make sense? I can't be gentle, I'm just helpless. Okay? That's closer to the meaning of this word. Blessed are the helpless, for they will inherit the earth. Hmm. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, translators have a really nice way of making things sound good. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Let's put a parenthesis there. And haven't found it. They want virtue. They want to be good people. They just can't do it. You ever been have people in your life that, they, man, they want to be considered a really close friend of yours, but they don't really want to do anything it takes to be a friend? You know what I mean? I'm pretending this is others and not just us, but... The reality is that there is a sense in which we have a desire for something that we cannot attain. I don't think it's inappropriate, by the way, to read this verse as blessed are those who are actually diligently seeking for righteousness. Good. But that doesn't seem to be the trend of the scripture. He's talking about the human conditions at the very lowest and says, even theirs is the kingdom. You hear me, Pharisees? The losers, the helpless, the hurting. They're in. 
Next verse, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Now this one, you cannot argue. Being merciful is pretty worth it. Except again, this being merciful is me, basically I can't stand up for myself and I can't do anything about it. That is, uh, a lot of scholars will agree that there's something there that's, uh, that's more suggestive of this list that Jesus is actually outlining human condition and just telling you, hey, when you're, all, when you're in all these areas of imposition, yours is the kingdom. Next verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That seems pretty decent. I think he's playing the high and the low here. Next verse. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is an interesting one. The peacemakers. American cops love to call themselves peacemakers. Seems like a very virtuous thing to call us. Uh, And it is. Um, God bless our police officers. Um, But again, the context of the scripture seems to suggest that the peacemaker actually is someone with no skin in the game. The better way of thinking about this is the people always in the middle. They're not on this side of the argument and they're not on that side of the argument. They're the peacemaker. They're not really making peace, but they're so terrified of the conflict that they're doing anything they can to solve it. It's again, a position of weakness in the context of this list. Next verse, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Hey, I think, what was it, Paul Simon? Blessed are the spat upon, ratted on. Can't remember the third part of that lyric. But it was like something, there's, in, there's an interesting imposition in our life when we are persecuted. There's something about the heart of God that draws him close to us. There's something in our suffering that he identifies with and he draws himself close. The list itself, you get where we're going here, right? The list is not a list like we like it to be, a list of virtues that if we can attain, if we can live up to, then we have now qualified ourselves for the kingdom. It's actually Jesus saying the qualifications for the kingdom are out of your control. My father and I set this up. You can attain it, but I don't think you can go this low. So you losers... Yours is the kingdom of God. You with nothing, you will inherit. You who mourn and are hurt and wounded, you will be comforted. That's the way my father and I set it up. That's the precondition of the Beatitudes. This is that Jesus. By the way, he's a genius. Because after this, he sets the precondition for who it is that qualifies for the the kingdom, and this should be enough, right? Any good minister knows this probably took him a a good tight 35 minutes. He probably had a solid three-point messaging repeated uh, often, and it packed a punch, and people can go away mesmerized, right? It does say at the end of uh, this little uh, soliloquy here that they were amazed because he taught with, as someone with authority, it didn't just say he, they were amazed because he taught like someone who, uh, you know, was a powerful speaker. It didn't say they were amazed because he taught uh, in a really, really organized fashion. It says that they were amazed because he taught as someone with authority. He taught as someone who actually was a subject matter expert. How did they get that? It doesn't tell us, but that's what Jesus is doing here. So we're talking about then 
what he does next in verses 12 all the way through 44 is he takes what I would consider a courageous dive. He doesn't shy away from what the issues are. And you can go back to the title screen uh, here, um, Jasmine, thank you. He basically dives right after that into how life is lived. The question then arises, okay, you told us who's in, you told us how low the bar is for us to qualify for this kingdom. What do we do now? How should we live? This is akin, I think, to Jesus taking on every hot social issue that there was of the day, shying away from none of it, and dropping the microphone when he's done. He's a genius, right? The problem with us doing that is it becomes politically divisive. This is, this is me like, okay, I'm going to attack immigration in, in, in a room full of all walks of life. I'm going to attack immigration. I'm going to ta- attack transgenderism. I'm going to talk about the homosexual agenda. I'm going to talk about, you, you know, you name it, the haves and the have-nots. Every issue that's going to, po- I'm going to talk about religion. I'm going to talk about parenting. Well, you, I'm gonna, oh, man, I'm going to really irritate you. Half of you. Different half with every issue, right? That's how we are. But this Jesus didn't show up as a Republican or a Democrat. He showed up as an authoritative source from his father who actually loves humanity. And he goes on a tear. Matthew 5, 21 through 44. I don't have the scripture. It's not, uh, we're not going to go through it verse by verse. But listen to what he attacks in what order. The first thing Jesus deals with in the problems in human living, do you know what the first issue is? Anger, hatred, contempt. Anger, hatred, and contempt. That is the encapsulated first issue. And he spends some time on this. Number two, lust. You could argue it's number three because he goes to kind of this anger, contempt, and then lust. By the way, anyone know the difference between anger and contempt? We should in today's world. We have plenty of both. Anger is that emotion from one to the other that you've been wronged and now it's time for retribution. Contempt is that I have been angry so long I no longer care. Very difficult. You ever seen contempt at work between people where you no longer care what happens to somebody? And secretly you do. But it's as if the machination comes out. I no longer care what happens to them, leaving them utterly open for even worse things. Contempt in the human heart is a very, very difficult place to be. You know that contempt and resentment that happens in our hearts is worth avoiding? A lot of people have talked about bitterness, resentment, you know, contempt, those things going together. You know how easily they come in? The, the people that you're easily angry at are almost the easiest ones to deal with. It's the ones that you develop contempt for later. The people we've been in conflict so long that we stopped caring. This is the issue at the, of the human heart that Jesus is tackling first. Then he moves into lust, talking about, hey, I didn't come to abolish the laws of man here. I came to, to keep them, but I came to give you a new law. Then talking about lust, hey, Hey, gentlemen, hey, guys, be careful. Be careful what you're seeing. Be careful what you're doing. 
And this isn't, somehow, this isn't a moral diatribe of a 2023 dissertation on morality and what you should and should not do. This was something, hey, I know how human life is lived. I have the words of life. If you'll hear me, you'll understand this is worth fleeing. This is worth fighting, okay? Then he's dealt with anger. He's dealt with contempt. He's dealt with lust. And only then, and only then, he dives into divorce. Don't you think divorce would rise to a higher level than being fourth on that list? Then again, do you think if we did away with anger, contempt, and lust, that most marriages would be in trouble? (laughs) Probably be a different world, right? And then Jesus takes a position on divorce here and basically says, hey, it's permissible for the hardness of your hearts. And we think, yeah, man, people are so bad that it's, you know, that it's okay. Uh, That's not what he's saying. Remember, divorce of the day is that if a woman was divorced, she could be given a certificate and go away. But her prospects for the rest of her life are literally prostitution, or if she's going to be remarried, she's likely going to be very abused. This is the the backdrop by which we're looking at human society at this time. Jesus understood that likely if a man could not dump this woman who he resented so much, she likely is going to die. This is the reality, the brutal reality of society at that time. Is our society any less brutal? No, we just have far more contempt. So it's silent. We have a lot of these this broken relationships in our human experience. And I want, by the way, anyone that has experienced the the pain of divorce, there is no condemnation. You dig into the words of Jesus here, there's no condemnation for you. There is more of a descriptive sense that he understands there are good things that are healthy for people and there are things that hurt us. He is acknowledging the pain that we go through in these scenarios, even though there are times where it is absolutely necessary for the protection of hearts and lives. That's just the way it is. He then strings through another list of manipulation, revenge, slapping. That was a big thing at the time. It's like I challenge you to a duel, I think, slapping. I don't know. Um, Suing, cursing, coercing, and begging. He just attacks it all. It was like any hot social issue of the day, anything that was going on between people, he went right at it. He knows real life. He understands what it's like. So here he is on the Sermon on the Mount. He opens it with this, uh, this concept of who actually qualifies for kingdom life. And it surprises most people because it's not the people that accomplish human objectives, achievements, and, and accolades. It is you and it's me. It's, it's the lowest of us that he came to identify with us. He came as a man so that he could go the lowest This man who is the personality of his father God became sin so that we would not die. He went the lowest anyone could go so that there was nothing he couldn't redeem. When he was resurrected, he brought up everything above him. That's why he went the lowest. That's this Jesus. So what do we do? I have a quotation by uh, C.S. Lewis. And do I, do I have that? 
I gave it to you right here. Let me read this to you. This is from his book, Mere Christianity. If you have not read this book, I mean, it's obviously uh, a classic, but it'll blow your hair back. It's pretty amazing. I find a good many people have been bothered by what I said in the previous chapter about our Lord's words, be ye perfect. By the way, this ends the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's a command that seems pretty tall order. Some people seem to think this means, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect then, if he meant that, our position is hopeless. We can't be perfect. But I do not think he did mean that. I think he meant the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. That's this Jesus. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. Here's who qualifies. Here's the problems with human life. Here's what to avoid. Here's what to do. Oh, and by the way, the most important commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Oh, the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because he understands actually doing something is how we prevent not doing something. The Pharisees have a thousand rules for what not to do. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There's a million don't do's, and you can spend your whole life not doing them and still do them with a broken heart and still do them in the wrong spirit. But Jesus says, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and you love your neighbor as yourself, all of the law is fulfilled. Because if it occurs, guess what happens? The don't do's disappear. There's a sense in which our physical world works like this. If you don't want to travel to Philadelphia, but go to New York instead, get a ticket to New York. You won't have to worry about not going to Philadelphia. Too simple, but it's true. If we aim for something different and head up the mountain, we will not wind up in the valley. Maybe circumstance takes us there, but that is not the point. The point itself is that when we pursue our love of the Father and reconciling the quelling of our anger and contempt to where we can love our neighbor like we love ourselves, there is fulfilled all the law and the prophets. We become what he intended, and we become qualified for this kingdom. Not anything we could earn. It's something he already prepared and destined in his heart well before time. And we're just walking into so Jesus' command to be ye perfect like your father is perfect is not an indictment to do the impossible. It is an invitation that he will make you the type of creature able to fulfill the command. Hallelujah. So in talking about this Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of, if I'm not careful, dry material, particularly by my standards, because I love inspiration. I love the Lord, and I love learning new things I didn't know. But if you were, uh, you ever took a foray in, in, like I said, in Bible college or any sort of seminary pursuit, this passage you're probably familiar with more than anything. We've heard it a thousand times. And there's nothing really hidden in there that's like, oh my gosh, except it's one of the Bible's great mysteries. 
it's clearly applied in so many ways. You can go to Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation and find way weirder stuff. Don't get me wrong. That's a mystery. Man, I don't know what that means. But nowhere else in the Bible, in my guesstimation, is something that is more of a mystery in plain sight like this sermon. This connected speech to normal people who responded for the second time upon hearing that the, avail- the kingdom was available and there was, there was a seat at the table for them coming to find out what this was really like, they came to this Jesus and this is what they learned. You can be in. There are things that want to steal it from you. But I came so that none should perish. It is the desire that none, of, of God, his Father and Jesus, that none should perish. And so he's got to give us away. Enter the Holy Spirit. You know what I love about New Horizons Church? We've been here for eight years. Eight years? What attracted us to this church from the very beginning was a hunger for the things of God. A hunger in us that we found in you and we share. There are people in this church sitting here right now that have such diligent pursuits of the presence of Jesus that it humbles me. It inspires me. The connection is that now we learn about what Jesus has to say, and we can lose it all if we don't experience what Jesus has offered for us to experience. If we have a life that's full of head knowledge but not transformed, what's the point? There is this bifurcation in the American church between all these sort of um, uh, different divisions and different, you know, you have, you have uh, the charismatic churches and you have Pentecostal churches and, you know, Lutheran and Calvin discussions about theology and you have um, all of these churches coming together. And it, I remember being eight years old in Sunday school going, how in the world does this gospel on flannel graph at that time reach the world? I also have National Geographic, and I can see the indigenous tribes around the world in, in Europe and in Africa and in Asia, and they don't look anything like me. They don't celebrate like I do. They don't do church like I do. They don't even have electric guitars in some of these places. Can you believe that? <laughs> no thanks, right? You know? You know anyway, glory. Um, the point is, is that there was some form, some some way church was supposed to be done, and that was going to save us all. And it didn't make sense to me even then. How is this thing, are we just trying to make New Horizons Church, for instance, just like every church in the world? No, it can't be so. Jesus must transcend our barriers. He's got to. He's got to, right? Jesus must be Jesus, across the lines we drew. He is himself unaffected by our own opinions of him, although he certainly invites our scrutiny, he invites our discretion, he invites our searching, he invites our longing, but he meets us in our suffering and rewards our diligence. That much I know. So in the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we now get the opportunity of experiencing an indwelling of the Spirit that was encapsulated in the person of Jesus and then released on the earth when he ascended into heaven. Now, there's some scholars that say, no, the Holy Spirit was always at work in these different ways. Okay, cool. I'm good with that. 
but Jesus and all the power inside the person of Jesus was in some new way, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm sending you another, a comforter. The Holy Spirit, he was unleashed on the planet, and we have the privilege of that experience. When I was 17 years old, I had come to a culmination point where I grew up in church, and so I knew about Jesus, and I knew all the stories, and I learned the theology that was sort of given to me up until that point. I reached a point in my personal life. I was 17 years old. Uh, my mother had become very sick. Uh, she was really my only connection to, like, responsible life, you know. And so she was kind of out of the picture for a season, just uh, working through some of the challenges she was having. And I had moved out, uh, you know, wanted to be on my own, and I was just considering all of this and thinking, well, I know there's times in my life I love the Lord and have loved the Lord, but I'm in that searching place. I, I don't know. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he lives. I don't know when he shows up. Sometimes I guess he does, but I don't know if he's real, real. And I don't know what to do about it. And I wound up, J July 27th, 1997, I wound up at a conference that occurred at a, a large church and. I don't even know what the details of the conference were, but I got invited and said, no, I'm not going to that. And so I went to that. <clears throat> um, you know how those go. So I'm not going, but, you know, I wound up there anyway. And I sat, uh, you know, this is a big church, and so I sat 54 rows back, whatever it was. And there was a man from England that that spoke. His name was Ken Gott. I don't know a lot about him now, but he began to speak. And he, at some point, was speaking about the shout that stopped God, right? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, right? This was the context of his message. I don't think he got five sentences out. This is during renewal time, kind of at the tail end. And he all of a sudden invited people to come who were searching after God and needed answers, and this was like a last resort. I'm looking around like, well, there's got to be some people like that here. And I realize I'm looking back at the row I just was sitting in. I'm halfway to the front. And then I'm two-thirds of the way to the front, and I'm still saying I'm not doing that. And then I get to the front, and I look to my left and look to my right, and I'm the only person. There was 5,500 5, people here. I'm like the only person. And I hit the front row, and I am overcome with the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I can no longer stand. I hit my knees. Next thing I know, I'm surrounded by hundreds of people, shoulder to shoulder. The only thing I can tell you is that I had a vision as I'm on my knees, running from God, asking these questions, saying, I'm not going to approach. I'm not going to respond to, his, to this thing. I don't even recognize it as a calling from God. I just am curious. But then this indwelling sense says, I'm doing this. And I go and I hit my knees and I have a vision. And in this vision, I am in this bleak, 
old boxcar being towed by an old train up these terribly dismal tracks in this snow barren wasteland. And I'm hope I'm like a piece of cargo that's in one of these rail cars that's hopelessly wedged in with all of the cargo, and I cannot get out. And it's as if in my spirit I have this sense that the train is going somewhere and going to wind up somewhere like I've seen in World War II Nazi internment camp type of documentary. That level of grief and despair is exactly where this train is heading. And then the rail car door blasts open. And between the cracks of the cargo, I can see to the front this eye come into view, and it's the eye, I know the eye of Jesus. And Jesus looks, and he looks through everything, and he sees me, and he doesn't take his eyes off of me and begins to move the cargo out of the way, left and right, throwing the crates, and they're exploding. He's, he's hulking, he's massive, and he doesn't take his eyes off me. He's coming to get me, and he won't be denied. 17-year-old me says something happened. Long story short, I sat on the ground for a while before I wound up home. But it was like Jesus finally came and showed me, no, 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 no. Yeah, I do this, but I feel like that. There's a lot of head knowledge we can have about Jesus, but when is the last time you asked Jesus, what do you feel about me? Make sure you're seated. Right? Make sure you're ready for the answer. Because our Jesus is a passionate lover of humanity. That night, I was not ready for the answer he gave me, but it changed my life. Because it started a 17-year-old me on a path of absolute abandonment running after the Lord. What I did was so ridiculous, I, I would... I would go to work, and I would try to just focus. Oh, God, I'm going to bring every thought captive. You know, I'm working with all the passion that I can muster. But it's honest. It's honest. It's not a salvation by works. It's honestly, I made a deal with God. I said, God, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, and I am going to give it everything I have so that at the end, if you don't show it won't be because I failed. This is my reasoning. 17. I'm going to give you everything I got to see what's really there. That's the deal. One week later, August 4th, 1997, I lay down in my bed. It's 11.33 p.m. at night. As was my custom, I would try to be focusing on the Lord. I'd be praying, and other thoughts would come in to crowd those thoughts. I'd even get out of bed. I'd get out of bed, and I'd sit on this bedside. God, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I don't know you're supposed to say that. I don't, I don't recommend it. I don't know. I'm just saying it was my feeble attempt to just keep going, keep going. God, I choose you. God, I choose you. 
And for reasons I can't explain, I've never shared this story publicly before, by the way, but I feel like it's just important today. So bear with me. Um, I pray, God, I, I choose you as I had just for numerous nights. This is one week after the first experience. And I said, God, if you're real, come in to my room through this window. Again, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't have a context for that. I don't have a scripture to back it up. There maybe is one, but I don't know. It was just the longing of the heart of a young man that wanted to see God, and it just seemed like the easiest egress. And I laid back down, and I shut my eyes, and when I opened them seconds later, I'm aware of water on the ceiling. Now, water, for those that don't know, gravity makes it go to the floor. This was the opposite. It was on the ceiling. And it was this iridescent color. Now, I'd been to Bible college once. This wasn't in any of the classes. They didn't teach me what this was like. But this iridescent green water is starting to fill my room from the ceiling to where I am laying. As it gets close enough, I reach up with my hand to touch the water, and in that moment, it's as if there are no walls on my room. They're there, but they're not the real thing anymore. Does that make sense? They're like an apparition. They become the ghost. And the reality is that there's stars as far as I can see, and there's one star that gets my attention, that's twinkling, and it's like a million miles away, but it's coming at me, and I'm aware of it. And in a moment, it shows up with such power that, again, I was not ready for what I was about to experience. I'm 17. You need to know something important. I've never done drugs. If I had, I'd tell you, it is not... Uh, a holy thing. I'm just telling you because I had nothing by which to compare the experience. But that star is coming at me, and when it shows up, it stops. And before my eyes materializes three beings, a center being and two behind its left and right shoulder tears begin to stream down my face because I was like, God, this wasn't exactly what I wanted and I am terrified. And when I say I'm terrified, you have to understand what I mean. I don't believe I'm going to be harmed, but I can't be here. Moses had to take off his sandals. I had to get out of here. And so I began to crawl. But I had to crawl through the, fort, the field of this being. And it was not easy. I didn't move. And here I was, sitting on a bed in a modest house that I shared with my dear mother, who her room was across the hall. And my mattress just sits on the floor. And there I am, sitting at the end of my mattress, looking at what is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. 
feeling at the same time like I am a speck and nothing, and at the same time like I am eternally valuable. But I need out of here. I crawled across the hall and I sat at the edge of my mother's bed. She was sleeping. And I sat looking at the partially open bedroom door that I had just left. And out of the door is still beaming moonlight. It's the only thing I can describe it. It's like this blue light that's literally beaming out of my room. You can see the rays. This feels crazy. Who am I going to share this with? Now, by the way, it's just between us, okay? Don't share this with anybody else. And the internet. This is just between you and me and the internet. My mother wakes up, not knowing anything, and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I, I, I don't know. What comes to mind for you? What do you say? I go, there's angels in my room. And she looks and she says, oh, oh my God. Said, yeah, that's about right. She says, is that light? Do you see that light? What is it? You tell me. We sat and looked at that and watched it for what seemed like an hour. An experience that she bore witness to later. Why do I share that? I don't know other than to say I just feel impressed on my heart that I wanted to connect this morning, this idea that Jesus has prepared a kingdom for us. And when the kingdom that we learn about doesn't match the kingdom that we have experienced, do more reading. Because the Jesus and the Holy Spirit that we experience is one with the Father. And he has become one with us. This God wants to be seen. Why doesn't everyone have those experiences? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't earn it. You understand? I didn't, I didn't coerce God. I don't tell him what to do. But my heart was broken and longing, and I would not take no for an answer. And for a 17-year-old boy, I entered a season of a week that I have never again experienced where he was all that mattered to me. And I would sacrifice it all for audience with him. And when he comes through and he connects, it makes it all make sense. This is how we avoid the righteousness of the Pharisees. Surely they have their reward. They made their own rules. They live up to them. They get what they earned. But you and I are invited into something else something potent, something real, something alive in the world. It's alive. His presence is living. It's among us now. This presence, when we talk about revival, we talk about a touch that this, our nation and our communities need from God. It's possible. He's 
available. The kingdom is open. The seats are ready. The meal is prepared. Let's go there. It's okay. It's okay. Don't be afraid to leave what it is you think you're leaving. He wastes nothing. Nothing is wasted in the pursuit of God, and you will not be ashamed. I want to encourage you today. Don't worry about your reputation. He's got it covered. I want you to encourage you today. Don't worry about your money. He's got you covered. Don't worry about how you look. He's got you covered. Don't worry about how it sounds. He's got you covered. A contrite heart he has yet to deny. It is through that brokenness and love and desire that he meets us in the secret place. So this morning, I want to tell you the kingdom's wide open. Even losers get in. Hallelujah. All right? And not only is it open, but he's done it once and he'll do it again. All right? I know I'm over time. I apologize. It just felt really important this morning to just connect in this way. I just want to celebrate each and every one of you as well. I want you to know how loved you are, how loved this house is to my heart, to the heart of my family. It has been an extreme privilege to be around people passionate about the things of God. It has been an extreme privilege to be around people that seek to know and seek to experience this Christ who is alive and the spirit who is indwelling. May we experience more and more. Jesus, in your name, we ask for a fresh touch from heaven. We ask for an increased hunger for hungry hearts. We ask for a filling that with desire, that hunger only comes from you. We don't manufacture it. We certainly can't sustain it, but you can. You invite us into a kingdom that is alive. It is vital. It is full of miracles and full of possibility. And by it, many, many will be blessed through each and every person in this room. Fill us up, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Yeah.